right, how you guys doing? Happy Thursday. Uh, I'm very, very excited to start off our series, The Divine Connection. Uh, it's something that I take a lot of pride in, being able to teach this stuff uh, to the body. And by the way, uh, all of our, uh, those baptized, let's give it up for them one more time. They can hear you back there still. Yeah. So as I said, I am starting off this six-week series, The Divine Connection, and how you guys are able to better communicate with the Lord. So the first three weeks, we're going to be talking about how we believe, why we believe the Bible to be true. Next week with Don, you're going to be learn, learning how to read your Bible. And the last one with John, you're going to be learning about how to live this stuff out that we do read in Scripture. And the next, the latter three weeks, we're going to be learning about how to be praying, communicating well with the Lord. And i got to say, this first week... When John told me, when John gave me the schedule that I was going to be preaching about why we should believe the Bible to be true, I was very, very intimidated. I was very nervous, and I got to say, this topic hits close to home very, very much with me. Let me read you a scripture out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I read that for the very first time, doing a little Bible study through 1 Peter, my senior year of high school. I was on fire for the Lord, finally understood, like, the stuff at youth group. Sure, the games are fun. Develop relationship. I wanted to learn more about the Word. I wanted to grow in my faith, be a mature Christian, to one day be helping people. And so I can remember the very first time I wanted to start learning more about Scripture. I started learning, uh, watching, uh, have you guys ever seen God's Not Dead? God's Not Dead 1, 2, there's a few of them. I watched that many, many, many times. I actually did my last English project uh, for school, in high school, uh, on that movie. I did things as well, trying to share the gospel and start conversations with some of my friends by doing, uh, by passing out some of the bracelets, how he, the He Would Love First bracelets, who, um, an organization trying to spread the gospel, right? What would Jesus do? He would love first, and that. But it was that summer of 2020, just graduated high school, it was the first time when I really started to take 1 Peter 3.15 very, very seriously. It says, be prepared to make a defense to anybody who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I can think of many of these conversations that I try to have with some of my friends, non-believers and just other believers, trying to encourage them as well. And I was not able to give a reason of why I believed Christ was Lord and Savior over my life. I could tell them about my testimony about how the Lord came and served me, how he brought me up in a Christian home, went to private school, learned all the stories about Jonah, about the flood of Noah, learning about Jesus, but I cannot tell you why I believed that stuff. And so I can remember I was driving home from a job in Temecula, driving on Winchester. Do you guys know those little signs by the fields where it's like a dad playing baseball with the kids? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I was driving right past there. I can remember the time I began to start listening to debates I was reading other books, trying to see what the other side was talking about. Atheists, agnostics. I remember praying to the Lord. I said, Lord, my faith has never been as strong as it is right now. So challenge me. Lord, I said, challenge my faith because I don't believe anything that you can do will make me shake. And I advice, do not test the Lord. That's what Christ said to the devil. Do not test the Lord in many of those things because that summer was the most difficult time of my faith that I've ever experienced. Because during these times when I was listening to debates, 
When I was reading books about things that I didn't know what the heck people were talking about, I didn't know enough about my own faith to really defend some of the claims, some of the arguments that the other side was making. And so, as Sue, I'm sure some of you guys expected, I just got eaten up. I didn't know what to do. I started questioning everything. My biggest issue, which I'm teaching about today, is how do I know that I can trust what are in these pages, between these two covers? How do I know when it says, thus says the Lord, that is actually what God said? How do I know that this guy, Jesus, was an actual figure that I have put my faith in, that I'm trying to devote my life to? I could not answer those questions, and so I didn't know what to do. I remember, this is the very first book I read. My roommate's actually here. He might uh, be able to point out this book. Finally, in the spring, or in the fall, going into CBU my freshman year, this is one of the first books that I read in terms of hearing what an atheist had to say about whether the Bible's true or not. It's called Misquoting Jesus, The Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why by Bart Ehrman. And I hold this in a special place in my heart because this began a lifelong journey of finding out these answers of why do I believe what I believe. It was tough. It was discouraging. Like I said, it was one of the most hardest parts of my life. I can remember reading this book, reading my word every single day, praying, reading articles, watching videos, whatever it may have been, going out in the morning while my roommate was asleep, reading this book, sitting out at one of the outside tables and praying, Lord, please help me with some of these doubts that I have, even if you are, I don't know if you are real. I don't know. In these morning walks, this journaling, this reading, this prayer, I don't know if it's doing anything, but I'm going to try. So I prayed to God. I said, Lord, I want to believe in you and your son because it is true and not because I believe there's a slight chance that I'm going to go to hell if I don't. That was my biggest fear, but that is the only thing that held me there to be seeking the truth. And I can remember so many times, with my family specifically, many arguments trying to develop these things that I've heard from Bar Airmen, from other, all these atheists, all of these different arguments to where I thought this thing was sound, everybody agreed at what it was. People may have not believed it, but every Christian was on board. Many arguments, and if we're being real, many long, lonely drives home, crying, praying to God why he has put this burden on my heart. It was hard, but... Because I was after truth. I said, Lord, I don't know if you're real, but I'm going to be pursuing truth as much as I can, even if that doesn't lead me to me believing in you again. But if it is what it say it is, which is truth, Lord, if you say your word and that you are truth itself, I will find my way back to you. So I studied and I studied. I ended up having this burden so much in my heart that I changed majors. I was originally going to be a pre-nursing going. I switched my major to theology to be chasing after this to this day, do I believe that the Bible is true? So for the skeptic in here, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe or struggle and are too scared to tell anybody about your doubts, I can tell you, at least for me, I'll be the first and loudest tonight in the room, I have doubted whether this was true. You can be comforted by me, by other people, in the church, but I can tell you, tell somebody that you're doubting, because if we believe the same way that I did, I said, Lord, if you are truth, and I'm going to be led back to you, if you are in pursuit of truth, the Lord is going to bring you back to him 
even in the midst of your doubt. So my goals for tonight, for you Christians, I hope to be encouraging to you, hopefully taking down some of these walls that have made you struggle with communicating with God through reading your word and through prayer. For the non-believer in here, the skeptics, I hope the same way that somebody did something for me, tear down the brush, once again, break down the walls of some of these arguments and stops that are making you not commit to believing as Christ as Lord, and believing this to be the word of God. So I share with you tonight, I have five reasons planned, but because the service is going a little bit longer, we're short on time, I cannot promise you we're going to get to all five, but if you want to hear them, come on Sunday, okay? I'm going to try to get through as many as I can. Frankly, you might be thinking you're trying to drink water through a fire hose. There's going to be a lot of information. I'm going to be trying to inform you guys that scripture is true, that what it says in here today is the same thing that it said in the first century, the same thing that it said in 1500 BC. This is going to be hard, but I encourage you guys to follow with me as we begin. Point number one out of five is that the thing that how we know that scripture is true is the uniformity and the clarity of scripture. Now, many of you guys may not know but unlike any other religious book, that it is just not one time thing, just book, the Bible falling down on earth, being experienced by an angel, somebody taking it up, translating it, and boom, here's the word of God. Now the book, what we call the Bible, is actually broken up, is actually written and collected into 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New 39 in the old, 27 in the new, written not at just one time, not just received at one time, not just collected at one time, but written over 15 to 1,600 years. It was written not in just one place, but written in three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, written in three different languages, the Old Testament being Hebrew, the New Testament being Greek, and being a little bit of Aramaic. It's not just written by some high religious official that was trying to take control of the poor, the people of the land. And it was written by over 40 different authors. And not just priests or people who are trying, like I said, to take power from the people, but written by kings, written by priests, by prophets, and low people like fishermen, doctors, sheep herders, Pharisees, tax collectors, is written in different contexts written during times of war, written in the wilderness, written during destruction of nations, during slavery, during persecution, during people being imprisoned, and so many other places as well. It is not just telling. It is not just like you opening a textbook in history class. So many different genres are a part of what we call the Bible, stuff like ancient cosmology, talking about songs, prophecy, legal treaties, People crying out to God in their experience with the suffering and pain and evil of the world. Some like narrative and poems and letters written to people, written to churches, talking about the apocalyptic literature. There's 1,189 chapters within scripture. 31,102 verses, over 700,000 words, three and a half million letters. But despite all of that diversity, that we would say, how can this not be just a man-made book? We see that there are no errors 
no contradictions within each other. There is one voice, there is one story of a people, God's chosen people. There is one problem that has infested man, you and I, being sin. But luckily, there is one salvific plan of one God, one Savior, Christ, coming into this world to pay for the sins of man that have been talked about for over 1,500 years as it is written. See, Jesus Christ is the main character. You, you and I are not the main character of the Bible. It is God. Within the Old Testament, we see that Christ is the foreshadowed Messiah, the Savior who is supposed to be saving people from the sins. We see in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here's Jesus. Here's the guy that we have been talking about for hundreds of years. And the rest of the New Testament saying, what are we as his people to do with that? There is one divine author holding the Bible together, which is God himself. And so there is no other book on earth and specifically, any other religious book, if some of you may say that the Bible is just like any others, that we can just believe, pick one, and then you do you. No, the Bible, the Christian Bible, is the book like no other on the planet that can go punch for punch with any other religion in terms of its diversity, in terms of its uniformity, and the things that we may see as opportunities for it to be messed up. For there to be contradictions, we see none like other books that are circulating today. So does this one thing make the Bible the word of God? No, I don't think so. But just this one example, as well as four others that I hope to get to, are going to be ways that, no, it may not prove to you that it is the word of God. Only the Holy Spirit is going to be able to open your eyes to that truth. But you are going to be able to see that it is at least as a historic, reliable book. We go to number two. We see the unity and the clarity of Scripture, but number two, we see the careful transmission, the accurate transmission of Scripture. The Bible is the most copied book in the world. And I'm not talking about, some of you guys might be surprised, they did not have copy and paste back then to do all this stuff. And it wasn't until 1436 that we had a printing press to start doing this on mass numbers. And so people devoted to God were handwriting this stuff. Some of us can't type emails that are a paragraph long when we get tired, our fingers start hurting, but there's people dedicating their lives to the protection, to the careful, accurate transmission of God's word. We look at people for the Old Testament. There's these people called the Masoretes. They lived from 500 to 1000 AD. These guys were obsessed with God's word, obsessed with protecting it, some of the things, they would have to have certain ink, certain sizes of paper to make sure that this is how we are going to be copying scripture. They made sure that they could not use new ink when they were writing God's name because they were scared to blotch it out. Every single time that they were writing, when they were copying one page to the other, every single letter that they would write down, they would go back to double check that it is right and check the letter after to make sure they are writing the right one. These guys are weird. <laughs> I, I cannot correct my own essays. We don't even check our emails. It's sad. It's really, really sad. And thank God for autocorrect. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we get super, super weird stuff. So I'm like, thank God we have the Bible that we have today, the technology that we are able to continuously have the Bible in front of us. These were the oldest copies that we have of our Old Testament. 
From 500 to 1000 AD, these were the earliest ways we can see what, so the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible that we have today, which is the Old Testament is what they call it. That was the earliest manuscripts, the copies that we were able to have to tell what it actually said. But, small story, 1947. One day, just walking around the side of the Dead Sea, a little shepherd boy, probably with his sheep, probably with another shepherd, just hanging out. One day, they're just picking up rocks, just throwing it into a cave. You know, boys still do that, nothing's changed. Just throwing it in a cave. One of the days, one of the times, they hear just a big old thud within one of the caves that they're trying to hit. They walk in, and to their surprise, they had first discovered some of the first manuscripts of the greatest archaeological find in the 21st century. Some of you may have already heard of them, the Dead Sea Scrolls. What they found were a few full scrolls or little tiny manuscripts of the entire book of the Old Testament. Over 70 plus years, in 1947, they have spent 70 years excavating the site, not just finding one cave, but 12 caves where these people, the Essenes, would be storing some of their scrolls, documents, commentaries on scripture to protect them from Rome. And so over 70 years, we have found either entire scrolls or even tiny, tiny manuscripts, probably the size of that, of every single Old Testament book besides the book of Esther. It's one of the researchers, Dr. Patrick Zuckerin, who was on the Project of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is what he says. When it came to translating the Old Testament, the oldest text available to rely on was dated 935 AD. That all changed when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, which are at least a thousand years older than the Masoretic text. These are the people of the Mazarines. After years of careful study, it had been concluded that the Dead Sea Scrolls give substantial confirmation that an Old Testament has been accurately preserved. The scrolls were found to be almost identical with the Masoretic text. A significant comparison study was conducted with the Isaiah scroll, the prophet Isaiah, the book Isaiah, with the Isaiah scroll written around 100 BC that was found among the Dead Sea documents. And the book of Isaiah found in the Masoretic text, after much research, scholars found that the two texts were practically identical. Most variants were minor spelling differences, and none affect the meaning of the text. So we see this. Our earliest copy that we had of the Masoretics, 935 AD, probably 900 years after Jesus died, seeing the Dead Sea Scrolls being the century before Christ existed, when compared one another, as he had said, virtually identical besides some spelling errors, which has not affected text, not affected meaning, not affected doctrine that we preach from Isaiah. And so many other examples are within the Dead Sea Scrolls that we, that God himself has carefully preserved his Old Testament. We look at the New Testament. The New Testament was written Soon after Jesus died, probably year 45 to 100 AD, we have over 6,000 Greek manuscripts, either whole copies, like I said before, small, 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 small fragments. And that is not including over 10,000 manuscripts that we have of Latin language, or even thousands more that we have of Syriac, that we have of Arabic. And so we have probably more than you thought of how many that we have that we were able to collect and see and cross-reference and compare of how accurate that we have of the New Testament today. This is some 
not many, but some comparisons between other ancient Near Eastern copies that we have of other people. We see philosophers, we see historians, many people, just because that we are not claiming that it is a religious book, would say, okay, any copies that we have, that is what it was said. But because scripture is being attacked by the powers because of undoubt or doubting people, we see that, of course, we are not going to be able to say that this is exactly what it said. And let me tell you a few. Plato, we have seven copies, but 1,200-year difference from when the earliest copy we have to when he was alive. Caesar, we have 10 copies, over 900-year difference. Herodotus, a Greek historian, eight copies, 1,300-year difference. The philosopher Aristotle, five copies of a 1,400-year difference. The New Testament, we have 4,000 to 50,000 different manuscripts. And the closest one that we have is 35 to 100 years from when it was first written. So if we're being intellectually honest, we're going to be able to say that we have to have, that we have to trust the historicity, the reliability of Scripture compared to some of these other worldly writings. Even some of these other differences, there are for sure textual variations between different manuscripts, whether it's spelling errors or just flipping of words. But nonetheless, nothing affects, nothing influences anything that we are preaching from the word to you guys on a Sunday morning or tonight. For anyone in here who is scared that the Bible isn't true because it's been passed down over and over and translated because people are playing the telephone game and after a while, people's context starts getting mixed up, we see that through God's divine providence that we, that he has preserved his word for his people. Number three, the historicity of scripture. So is the word historic? Many people are okay with calling the Bible a religious book. Like I said, hey, that's your thing, you do you, just don't tell me about it. I don't really care. We put it on the same lines as the Book of Mormon, as the Quran, these other religious books that are claiming to be inspired by God, but they doubt that the Bible makes historic claims, but to that I say that they are false. I'll give you a few examples of that. One of our favorite kid stories that we like to talk about in the Bible, usually always painted on a wall. I think we actually have it on some of our in our kids' building. The story of Noah. Everybody familiar with the story of Noah and the ark? He got two of each pair. And I'm like, okay, she knows. She knows. Kids' ministry is teaching well. Good. Many skeptics are seeing when they're reading Genesis 6 through 9, talking about the story of Noah and his family and the ark and the animals, that this, of course, could not be the case. There is no way that there was a flood that God had to punish people on the world. And to that, once again, I say that they are wrong. Now, I can't tell you what year that they were found, but we have two other stories during that time, one called the Epic of Atrahasis and the Epic of Gilgamesh. These are two different stories, one from Babylon, the other one from uh, Assyria, talking about flood narratives that were within their context. And so most scholars, people who actually sometimes know what they're talking about, most scholars see that these similarities, that some god or gods has chosen a man to be a remnant, to be put on a boat while he punishes the rest of humanity, we see that there are similarities between the two, but most scholars suggest that these similarities do not point to people copying 
or just hijacking, specifically Christians or uh, the Jews hijacking the Babylonian epic or the Assyrian story, but that people in real time, in a real place, recorded historic truths, historic events of a flood happening within at least their region. We're not going to go into a totally different topic of whether or not the flood was worldwide or in a region, but we see that at least in the region of where the Jewish people lived, that there was a historical event, a real flood that was then shaped and morphed due to culture, due to a different context. They're shaped to have theological interpretations. And of course, we're going to say, I'm biased. I'm Christian. I'm going to say that the Christian interpretation is correct. But that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Bible having real historic claims that are proven to be true. Next one that I'll mention real quick, King David. Everybody knows King David. Here's another kid's story of uh, David slinging a rock and killing Goliath. I don't know if you guys got into that yet. Well, you didn't raise your hand. But even skeptics still, or even in the 20th century, were doubting whether these stories, whether his adultery with Bathsheba, whether his fight with Goliath, whether his relationship with Saul, his divine calling from God was even real. But 1993, these excavators are up in Upper Galilee, uh, in the, um, uh, next to Israel, sorry, found what is called, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the word, it's called a stele. So what a stele is, is just a statue, it's usually taller than it is wide, having some sort of honor of whoever person. This one that they found called the Tel Don stele, found in 1993, talks about a king. King of a people called from uh, Aramea, this King Hazael, talks about this victory that he has had over 70 kings that he was just absolutely wrecked. And one of the names that is on there, before this, we have never heard or seen any inscription that talked about David, which made people skeptic, right on the stone, saying in ancient Hebrew, Bayit David, which is the house of David, which would be the first reference of how we know King David is a real person, dating all the way back to the 9th century BC. Last one for in here. People, maybe, this may be some of you in here, being real, have doubted whether Jesus was a historical figure or not. But we see it would make sense, of course, the Christians are going to write about a person that they believe in, whether he's real or not, whether that there's been uh, theories that all of these disciples, all of these Christians hallucinated seeing that Jesus was risen and saw him in bodily form. Some people think that he was made up entirely. Some people think that Jesus was a crazy person, that there, of course, could not be any evidence outside the Bible, any evidence outside of Christian sources that would show Jesus to be a historical figure. But we see... Historians, Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, he has nothing to gain by talking about Jesus being real. He doesn't believe that he's the, he's the Christ, that he's a savior, he's a Jew. But we see that he has mentioned with his, his writings, antiquity of the Jews, referencing a Jesus who did signs and miracles, who did die, suffered under Pilate. We see other people like Tacitus is a, a Greek historian. Once again, pagan has nothing to do or on the side of Jesus. But even in the same thing, talking about him, Jesus being a human figure, him doing, being a part of the suffering of the most high in Rome, which is either penalty or just death, 
or more specifically, crucifixion on a cross. We see that he talks about the evidence of Christians being in Rome. And even without that, even without the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, telling us that Jesus was real, we still have centuries. We still have evidence within the first few centuries of Jesus' death and resurrection. We have sermons and creeds from the early Christian church talking about that there was a Jesus who lived. There was a Jesus who was crucified, that died by the hands of Pontius Pilate by crucifixion, and that they claim, over 500 witnesses, claiming that they have seen the risen Jesus. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not going to read it out loud. 1 Corinthians 15, talking about what they believe Christ has done for them in their lives and saying that there has been meetings. 1 Corinthians, there are still over 301 eyewitnesses of the resurrection still alive during that day. You are now in the minority if you do not see Jesus at least as a historical living figure. So time and time again, these doubts, these theories, these arguments that were getting so locked up in my head are soon over the years proven false, disproved. And there's still many more that might be bugging you guys today, still questions that I'm not able to answer. But it is only a matter of time. If God is a God of truth, he's going to show us evidence of the Messiah that he has sent to forgive us of our sins. So it is only a matter of time before more of these walls that are breaking us between this divine connection are going to be taken down. Guys, I do not want you, God does not want for me, for you to believe in the Bible just based on wishful thinking. Not because it is mom or dad's religion, but he's telling you, as Donnie says, he wants you to have a faith, your own faith that you can own on your own for your own reasons. So whether or not God has redeemed you from an addiction that you've now been saved from, when you understand that scripture has historic claims that can be proven, when you see the unity and the clarity of scripture through the entire 15 to 1600 years that it was written, you're able to see that many, if you look at a diamond, every single time you turn it, it's going to be looking a different type. It's going to have two totally different beauties, different aspects of the one diamond. The same thing goes for your faith. It is hard for you to believe in a God when it's all based on personal experience because as soon as you think God lets you down, you're done. But when you base it on, yeah, personal experience, when you have faith that Christ was real, that Christ has lived and died for your sins, but when you also believe that scripture is not just some made-up book, people trying to control the masses, but it was real people in real time, real places talking about real events, and most importantly, foreshadowing and telling and experiencing the risen Lord, that is a faith that is strong. That is a faith that's going to make you go out courageously to people who have doubts about Christianity. That was my biggest thing, is that how can I talk to my friends when I don't even know why I believe in the things that I do? But now, seeing some of these, I now act in boldness and now come to you this morning, or this, <laughs> sorry, this is Sunday morning in my head, come to you tonight, preaching to you that scripture is something that we can fully trust. Number four, that might be only getting to point number four. So Sunday, come back for point number five, okay? Number four is the prophecy of scripture. 
Now, there's tons of prophecies within the Old Testament that don't necessarily talk about Jesus. They may be talking about destruction of nations or bringing people out of slavery and captivity. But what I think is the most beneficial for you guys tonight is understanding messianic Messiah, prophecies of the Messiah so that you may see that Christ is not just some dude who showed up out of the blue and everybody's like, who the heck are you? No, what he came to do, what he came to fulfill, what was the promised for hundreds of years based in the Old Testament was this prophecy that there is going to become a savior to forgive you of your sins. Without prophecy, we do not have a savior. Without the Old Testament, we have no savior proclaimed. I want to know, I want you guys to know that prophecy of Jesus, God did not have Jesus for your guys' life as plan B. Jesus, Jesus was his main goal, his main plan, his main end before Jesus became flesh. Before the nation of Israel became God's people, before Abraham, before Noah, before Adam and Eve, before the foundations of the world, God had Christ as his plan to redeem you. And we see that in the Old Testament in many, many, many passages. I'm just going to list a few and dive specifically into one a little bit more. We see Genesis 3.15. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, he said, that I'm going to, talking to the snake, I'm going to be putting enmity between you and the woman the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, but you will bite his heel. We see that Christ crushing the head of the snake, defeating death, defeating fear, defeating sin, but having to bear the cross for us. We see Psalm 2, this anointed, this Messiah King who's going to be coming, the Son of God, and God is telling him in Psalm 2, nations prepare for my King, my Son, to come. We see Psalm 22 talking about Jesus's crucifixion, Psalm 118, talking about the stone that the Pharisees, the stones that you people, his people has rejected is now the cornerstone of the covenant. We see Isaiah 9. We talked about this at Christmas. For unto us a child is born, for to us a son is given. He's going to be called great counselor, mighty God, El Gabor, which is the only title deserving for God. In any other scripture, we see that the son who's going to be proclaimed is going to be mighty God. We see Isaiah 11. The branch from Jesse, if you guys don't know who Jesse is, David's father. And who is David? The great, 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 great grand or grandfather of Jesus. So we see that he is part of the branch of the lineage of Jesse. And it says the spirit shall rest on this branch. We see in Mark 1, Christ getting baptized. We see God speaking from the heavens. This is my son with who I am well pleased and the spirit descending on him like a dove. We see Jeremiah 31, the bringing of a new covenant of grace, which Christ has brought for us. Daniel 7, that somebody like a son of man is going to be entering into the presence of the ancient of days and be exalted. And my all-time favorite, if you guys have time, turn to Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant of God. Let me read it for you guys. It's not going to be up on the screen. It's 12 verses. So I'm just going to read it for you real quick. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and, was, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he was esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid him, laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I encourage you guys to read the gospels in light of that prophecy and vice versa. Read Isaiah 53 in light of what Christ has done. You're going to be able to see that Christ, being born as man, living life as a carpenter, did not come in glory or majesty. He was rejected by men. He was despised. He did suffer for us. He was crushed by God for our iniquity, for our sin. He was, he, we were healed by his bruises. He bore our rebellion. He was a lamb led to the slaughter. He had a grave with the wicked. He had a tomb with the rich. He had done no violence. He did not open his mouth, justified many by taking the guilt on himself. He made righteous many through his saving works. For many of you guys who don't know, that prophecy is written 700 years before Christ actually came onto the scene. So we were able to see that through God's providence, through his sovereignty and the preservation of his word, Scripture is to be trusted. Scripture points to Christ. This is what Walter Kaiser says. He says, So important is prophecy to the very nature of the Bible that it is esteemed that it involves approximately 27% of the Bible. God certainly is the Lord of the future. Do any of you guys like wish you could prophesy, you could start telling the future? I'll tell you just this last week, I wish I could prophesy. I'd be telling my parents not to throw a 49er Super Bowl party, okay? We're not going to talk about it. Stop talking. We're not talking about that anymore. I'm done. There's always next year. But if I was able to tell the future, that was one thing. That would have saved a lot of money, a lot of heartbreak that night. These authors were not communicating with each other from Old Testament to New Testament. Like I said, Isaiah, the book of Matthew, 700 years of difference between when they are written 
But this just shows, this proves to you that through God's plan, he has, through his word, ordained. He has, through his word, prophesied that our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior has come to take on our sin. I close off tonight, as I said, not getting to point number five, but I do close off with these at least four reasons that has helped me in my journey. Four years of struggle, four years of some doubts now, but it has comforted me. The Lord has led me now through some of these things as well as the Holy Spirit to see that when I see, thus says the Lord, when I see or read of Christ's miracles of his life, death, and resurrection, I can see that as truth the same truth that was written during the Old Testament times and written in the first century when Christ was walking and his disciples were starting the early church. But I tell you guys this, you will not be a faithful Christian just based on a few facts that you know about the Bible. Just because you may think now, or maybe not now, maybe I did a terrible job, but if you do think now that the Bible is a reliable historical book, that still does not mean that you are saved. But if we do believe tonight that Scripture here is the Word of God, what says is truth, and we will be able to see Mark 1, we see that it's truth, where Christ says, Our Lord, our Savior, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you see that as truth, this truth, divine truth, should move you to action. Do not be idle tonight. Do not be idle throughout the week if you truly do see this as God's word. But I tell you, be encouraged. If you have not already, repent and believe in the gospel. Be able to see in Romans, the apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised, then you will be saved. So we can see that as truth tonight. I can tell you, by God's grace, I am saved. By God's grace, I am on the other side of almost leaving my faith entirely. I'm on the other side of being scared to tell my family that I doubted. And I encourage you tonight, if you doubt, tell somebody. Have conversations, because I said before, if you believe that God is truth, if you say, God, I am seeking truth, I don't know if that is you or not. You will come back to see that scripture and to see that God himself is truth himself. Once again, for believers in here tonight, I hope I was an encouragement to you. I would love to have any conversations you would want right after this service. But for the skeptics in here, I'm praying for you. I was one of you. And I'm confident if you pray to God and ask him for the forgiveness of your sin and for him to lead you to truth, he will make you a disciple of his son. Do not be idle if you have seen truth tonight. And Christians in the room, be a comfort to those who doubt. Because they may just leave the church because they haven't had nobody to talk to, because nobody has talked to them about their struggles. So as I pray out right now, I pray that God may do a good work in us. I pray that I was a benefit to you, and I pray that you guys as a body, along with me, may be a benefit to one another. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace you have given us in seeing evidence for this being true. 
Lord, you recognize, I hope that many tonight knew, recognize your son as Lord and Savior of your life. And specifically, that when they see that you have spoken in your word, that it is truth and that it will happen, that it will be fulfilled. Lord, let us find joy in that. If we doubt, we struggle with our faith, let us speak up. Let those who are mature and who are strong be a resource for those who are weak. And let us grow in grace. Let us grow in love and comfort through those situations. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. Well, you guys have a great night. Remember Sunday here at point number five. I'll start off with point number five if you do come. But you guys have a great night. Drive safe. If you guys have any questions, I'll be out in front. Uh, we love you guys. And once again, have a great night. Thank you. Get warm.